Hey, and welcome to the Sit Down with Suzanne podcast. I am your girl, Suzanne, also known as Positively Suzanne. Now remember, this podcast was created with us in mind. It is a reminder that not only are we worthy, but we deserve the best versions of ourselves. So grab a cup of tea or your beverage of choice and sit back and relax and join me on this journey. Hi guys, this is Suzanne. I am so excited to be back with a brand new episode of the Sit Down with Suzanne podcast. I took a little break, y'all. So much going on, y'all know I'm a big time entrepreneur and doing so many different things and just really had to take time for me. You know, I always talk about prioritizing your mental health. So that's what I did. So I am back and I am beyond excited because my very first guest is none other than Robin Kennedy. And I don't want to say it, but um, not that Kennedy, but if you want to associate her with that Kennedy, I'm sure she's used to it her whole life. Um, but she is running for state senate, y'all. And I met her at an event a few weeks ago. And I tell you, I adored her. And I just knew that we we're going to be connecting and doing things. So I am going to give her the floor to introduce who she is and what she's doing. And then you're going to get to know her through this interview because you know how I do. I like to talk to people that inspire me. So Robin, welcome to the Sit Down with Suzanne podcast. How are you today? Good morning, Suzanne. I am great being with you here this morning. I uh, I am, I'd say 100% mutually agreed on everything you just said. Uh, I'm so, it's such so great to know you and to be in community with you here. I look forward to uh, chatting with you today and I look forward to uh, all the work we'll do together in the future. All right. Awesome. I'm excited. All right. So, um, Positive fans, let's dive right in. You know, my platform really focuses on inspiring, motivating, and empowering. And I believe you're going to get all that from this podcast. And you are going to be inspired to get up, to go out there and vote. You know, I like to give you guys call to action. So this is going to be your call to action. You're going to find out how you can vote, where you can vote, when the election in, and all that thing. But before we get to that, let's dive into who Robin Kennedy is. So Robin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Excellent. Well, as you mentioned, I'm running for the state Senate first Worcester district seat uh, and talk about inspiration. I'm running for the seat that Senator Harriet Chandler is retiring from after a lifetime of fighting for our district, for our families, for our community, to making sure that everybody in our community has the opportunity to thrive. And so for me, I'm looking forward to continuing her legacy and continuing that work. I'm a lifelong Worcester resident. I grew up up near the airport uh, in Webster Square and uh, recently, several years ago, bought a home over on the north side of the city up in Burncoat. I, up until recently, also worked at the YWCA of Central Mass as our chief operating officer. And for your listeners who aren't familiar, the YWCA has a mission of eliminating racism and empowering women. Uh, so that mission is core to who I am and, and what I do both professionally and personally. And uh, we're also a multi-service agency that has everything from early education and care to transitional housing to domestic violence services and wellness and health equity and youth development programming. Prior to that, I actually spent most of my career in state government working for former Lieutenant Governor Tim Murray and former state Senator Ed Augustus uh, years ago before I became city manager in Worcester. Uh, so really looking to bring that state government experience and equally as important, my work in the community, serving the community to the state house to be able to help support and, and serve the, the first Worcester district. Oh, that's wonderful. There's so much information packed into that. First, I heard you grew up in Worcester, so um, you are running for a district in Worcester, so that's fantastic that you're familiar with it, because I think Worcester is such an interesting place. I remember when I moved there, oh, I'm going to tell my age, um, you know, over 20-something years ago, and it's so different from what it is today, um, but I've always loved Worcester. I always felt that it's a quiet town and it's a loud town, um, but I think that you could just be who you want to be um, in Worcester. And, you know, you are right. And, you know, thank you for paying homage to um, Harriet Chandler. She's been in that seat for so long, did a lot of amazing things. So, so step into those shoes. I absolutely know that you can fill them and wear them. And you know what? Go um, even further because this, um, where we are in this culture right now, uh, I just think that the possibilities are endless. Um, and I think more and more they're recognizing just the capacity and the capability of women and what we can do. So some of the things and the challenges that she faced in the past, 
I pray that you won't face the same. It's not, you know, the old boys club anymore that, you know, you'll get your foot in the door and, you know, smash that glass table to smithereens. So um, tell me though, um, what made you go into politics? You mentioned a little bit of doing your work, um, you know, working with different people and Edward Augustus, who was a great city manager, you know, by the way, but what made you decide that, okay, I'm going into politics. I can see the link, but link that for us. Sure. And I think it's actually, it's really important to something that you referenced, you know, Worcester is an amazing city. It's, you know, the city of many neighborhoods uh, that are all tied together by a common bond and a common community. And, uh, but Worcester has seen a lot of change in the last several years. You know, it's, it's a very different city from the one that I was born into. And we've seen a lot of new development and a new, a lot of new investment happening in our community. But I think it's incredibly important while all this new development is happening that we have leaders that are particularly mindful to ensure that every resident benefits uh, mutually from the growth that's occurring here. You know, when we have a lot of developers coming in, we've seen, for example, that a lot of the, the new housing developers that have come in are building vast majority of market rate housing that is pricing out a lot of the residents here you know, both those work in workforce housing as well as affordable housing. And so it is incredibly important that we have leaders that are going to be diligent in making sure that as we do grow and we want to continue to grow as a city, as a community, that we're particularly mindful that there's equity, equity that's driving all of that growth and development. And for me, that's really what brought me to, to go into politics, moving from the work I did directly at the YWCA making sure that families have access to quality, uh, affordable childcare, to making sure that women and families who are fleeing domestic violence have access to supportive services. You know, we, we have a transitional housing program for women who are unaccompanied by their children. Um, and we see the struggles, particularly that these women experience when they're, you know, trying to move out of homelessness, trying to find stable, safe, secure housing, and really the lack of permanent affordable options that are available when they're looking to exit the tra our transitional program. And for all of these reasons and knowing that there's real solutions out there if we're focusing and working on them really is what's driving me moving from the community work into politics, back into government uh, to be able to continue the work that I did while working in government uh, years ago. All right. You know, that's so important. You know, what you said, there is just so much, um, going on in Worcester. And I think a lot of times when places develop and grow, you're right, they do push out, you know, the long timers, the ones that have been here. You know, I always used to think, so I had, um, well, I won't call them out because I try not to bash anybody, but this particular cable company that you go into this bundle deal and it's very nice for a year. And then after a year, the price jumps like 300%. And then you see them offering these deals to new people and you're like, hey, like, what about us? And they're like, yeah, you don't qualify. You have been a member for, you know, three years. And I'm like, well, shouldn't loyalty be rewarded? And <laughs> that's how I feel about the housing situation in Worcester. You know, they were there, uh, you know, and like the development and they're going through that. But now folks are moving from Boston because Boston is too high to come to Worcester and they can't afford to live in the place that they grew up. You know, how sad is that? So I'm glad you highlighted that and how important it is for us to really work together to build a better community because we don't want to lose the longtime Worcester residents. That's our history. And, you know, we have to be inclusive. And that's, you know, one of the things I like about Worcester. I came here when I was 16 years old from Jamaica and, you know, I saw a plethora of different different races and cultures and religion and just everything you can think of. I mean, my 16-year-old eyes were goggling because I just wasn't used to that. But I want that to retain. I want that to stay. I want everyone to have that experience and not only a certain tax bracket being able to live in Worcester. So I'm glad that you, you know, you recognize that that's an important issue and it's something that you are going to continue to fight for. So yeah. thank you for that. No, absolutely. And I, and I will say, you know, it's uh, not to go down, to, down too far in a policy uh, rabbit hole, but, you know, it's so interesting you mentioned that with the cable company and, and, you know, you don't have to name them, nor will I name them, but 
everyone should know who they are because unfortunately, you know, most municipalities, there's a monopoly on the cable uh, industry. And that's, you know, you look nationally at, at maps and the cable companies have really divided up the communities. And so when you talk about access to broadband or access or equitable access and, and representative services, you know, that's something that legislatively, I think we need to tackle that there are these monopolies and, and you're, there's very limited choice in, in what, uh, what individuals can do to be able to seek better services or different types of services. So no, I definitely appreciate that. And I think, you know, Worcester has, it's the city of the Seven Hills, you know, has always had neighborhoods that align with different, you know, immigrant communities, different, different uh, populations as they've made Worcester their home. And it's so important that we continue to ensure that every community is, has equal access, as you mentioned, to the opportunities. And when I say equal, it, it's an equitable because we know different folks are coming with different cultural experiences, different um, needs and identities. And, and we need to make sure that we are not just using platitudes and talking about being a welcoming city, but really being deliberate and making sure that, that everyone that makes Worcester their home it really is, it is a home for them. So um, absolutely, that's a, that's a big conversation that we need to continue to raise. No, absolutely. And believe me, we won't be able to tackle all the issues in the podcast, but it will whet their appetites to go out and say, let's find out what, you know, what Robin really is about. And, you know, you're right. Um, you know, I had a conversation with someone recently, like, you know, if you st stay silent about your attackers, they only grow more empowered and emboldened. And, you know, so you do have to speak on things. So, no, you know, honestly, it was charter. I, you know, I remember for years. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to name you. I'm a good name, names, honey. <laughs> it was harder, and it was frustrating for me for a very long time. And, you know, I had just started out, you know, just recently married, um, didn't have the job that was paying well. And, you know, but, you know, you had cable, internet, and phone. That was way before cell phones. And I just remember got it, getting in with like a $99 bundle. And then after that, I swore it jumped to like 300 and something dollars after the year. And I was stuck in it. And because I didn't have a choice, I tried other places. Um, you know, I think Verizon wasn't here yet. There was just so many, like you couldn't access. So I ended up having to pay it because I wanted to watch TV. We didn't have this many streaming services. So, you know, you're right. Um, we do have to figure out um, a way to implement policies so that places don't have monopoly and things. And then you're stuck paying for a cost you need. I mean, it wasn't a necessity but you needed it. And because of that, you know, you end up paying far more than your budget really can afford because you had no right. other choice. Right. And we should be protecting consumers over companies for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, companies will be okay. They yes, will be all right. <laughs> Competition is a good thing. It is. It is. It is a very good thing. So, um, you know, you really talked about a lot of the things that I was going to ask you, just really talking to your roles. And I could see how your previous role at the YWCA has really prepared you for, you know, race and politics because you represent a multicultural district. Um, and, you know, you do have to get familiar with the issues that affects every single person. I mean, it's like being a parent, right? Like every child is important and every child is different. And as that parent, you have to try to get to all their needs. So I think that's what's going to happen for you. So you've been going out and campaigning. I've been following you on social media. So what are some of the biggest issues that your constituents are talking about when you are, you know, traveling out there and just chatting with folks? Sure. Well, and, and to your point, you know, that it is a very diverse and unique district and it's, you know, it's certainly uh, a good portion of the city of Worcester. It's also five uh, communities in West Boylston, Boylston, Berlin, Bolton, and Northborough. And there's different opportunities and there's different challenges uh, that each of those communities are facing as well. And it's so important for leaders to be able to recognize that there are no one-size-fits-all models and there are no kind of monolith issues and challenges or groups or responses, um, you know, anywhere. And so, you know, one of the big issues that I talk constantly talking to folks about is housing. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the challenge that Worcester's facing with the, you know, rapidly rising cost of rental of the rental market. Um, you know, it's, it's such a challenge in Worcester where now the rates of rents are far exceeding mortgage costs. 
but a lot of people don't have the ability to put the assets together to be able to purchase their first home. Um, but the, and that the cost of rising that are really putting a crunch on families to be able to stay stably housed where they are. And so, you know, that's a big challenge for the city of Worcester to be addressing. But, you know, there's different kind of nuances to those challenges out in the communities. I talk to a lot of uh, folks as I'm outdoor knocking where there's now multi-generational homes where it's, you know, 20 and 30 somethings living with their 50 and 60 year old something um, parents. And, you know, it's um, sometimes it's out of to care for their parents or sometimes it's out of, you know, support or to save up money. But as I'm talking to some of the, the residents, particularly the younger residents, more and more I'm hearing that it's because they want to stay living in their community, but they can't afford to buy a home there. Or they can't, there's not, a, there's not a, enough of an array of, of rental properties available in that community. And so they're really staying at home until something can, can come along for them. And so, you know, that's something that for the communities is a very different look. Also, when we're looking and tackling, you know, issues around affordable housing in, in Chapter 40B, which is the state law that governs affordable housing, you know, it's it's a it's a rental issue in the city of Worcester, but actually in, in the communities for in many communities, it's a home ownership issue. So, you know, a town like Berlin, they've reached 17 percent. Every town and city is required to have 10 percent of their stock designated as affordable. Berlin is that 17 percent, but they're consistently losing units because the amount, the the threshold that a family has to have for income to qualify as being you know, affordable income wise is about $2,000 less than what a mortgage company will mortgage a property based on. So you have this discrepancy of about $2,000 that's preventing families from being able to access a mortgage to purchase a home. And therefore the community keeps losing some of these 40 units off the rolls because they can't sell them quick enough. So these issues are complicated and they're nuanced and we really need, you know, leaders right now with the expertise and not only having worked in the community working on issues of housing, but when I was at the state, you know, particularly when I worked for Lieutenant Governor, the six years that I worked for him, I worked on issues of housing and, and homelessness. And so really having that experience, as well as being in the community, working with individuals in particular who are seeking housing, you know, has been really important to be able to uh, really know what needs to get done getting back to the state house. Okay. Um, you know, it's funny when I was researching, you know, looking you up and things like that. And I found out like Berlin was in the same day. I was like, oh, Berlin. Like it was just, I just never, cause my best friend lives in Berlin and it's so far yeah. away to me. <laughs> so yeah. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, uh, in, in the podcast, like just where we represent and where the district is, because I will tell you, I didn't know that. Um, so that's really good um, to know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and these communities, I mean, I, I they, they all have really unique identities and really some cool opportunities. I, you know, just to give it a quick example, in, in Berlin, they have, um, there's this community center called 19 Carter. It used to be a Methodist church that had gone unused and somewhat had become dilapidated. And so the community came together and fundraised and have rebuilt this beautiful, beautiful building and, and have made it into a community center that anyone in the community can enjoy. But they also have weekly coffees and weekly lunches so that they have, a you know, folks have a place to come together. So, you know, just really cool opportunities in these communities. Bolton is another example. They had an old rundown gas station that had been sitting idle for some time. Again, community came together, raised some money, and then they turned it into the Bolton Town Common which is now a beautiful open green space. So, um, you know, these, there's a lot of really great things happening in, in these communities too. So I'm really excited as I'm out spending time in the communities and, and talking to folks, but really getting to see what, what great things are happening. I'm looking forward to continuing to support those things. That's awesome. No, I, I love to see different things like that um, just in neighborhoods just happening all around. And, you know, it seems you really care a lot about um, the homelessness situation and housing. Um, you know, I was chatting with somebody um, recently and said, they, you know, there was just a lot of folks in our route in Worcester asking, you know, for money. And, you know, they made the observation that, you know, there's a lot of these folks out here and, you know, they asked, and I, I don't think they meant it, you know, in a bad way. They were just like saying, like, how did they let themselves become homeless? And, you know, and I think that comes from a place of truly not knowing, 
And, you know, I, you know, I said, what, you know, why do you think? And I said, you know, I, you know, yeah, there's mental health challenges and things like that, but people don't choose to become homeless. I, you know, I see mothers on the street with kids and living in cars and things like that, you know, and it, it, I think it's situations like this where the rent becomes so much and, you know, you're, yeah, they're moving the minimum wage, but you can't afford to buy gas and pay your bills and, you know, things like that. And, you know, housing, which is the biggest and most crucial basic need um if you can't afford housing that is how you become homeless and they're like oh i never thought of it like that i'm like no i i just you know think that i said most of us any one of us um can become homeless you know unfortunately i a few years ago and i shared my story a few years ago i was working and you know i ended up having a difficult pregnancy and I ended up stopping working and just having a steady income and then going to zero income, like my savings got depleted and, you know, had to look into my home and, you know, things like that. So those were things like I had to consider what, what if I lose my home? And I never thought that I would lose it. Kids, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm educated, I'm experienced. I had a great job and things like that. So I think it can impact anyone. One bad move in the stock market. So I think it's an important issue to tackle because the one thing we don't want to see is more folks displaced than being on the streets. So would you say that is one of the issues you hope to impact the most? Uh, absolutely, without question. And, and you know, I, I, there's there's actually a study done back in the mid to late, two, I think it's 2008 that it came out, that there's over 200,000 families in Massachusetts that are one paycheck away from, that are in the pipeline, one paycheck away, one medical crisis from homelessness. It is that drastic. And that was 14 years ago. Um, and certainly things have not substantially improved uh, for families. And, and partly because the system has not improved. You know, we talk about so many times when, some in some places changes can be made. Our state homeless shelter, particularly for families, is something that needs to be completely dismantled. It is a system that was built broken. You know, and this is something, as I mentioned, I've worked on significantly in my career that, you know, back in the 80s when the family shelter was first created to respond to families that were experiencing homelessness, it was put under, the shelter system was put under the Department of Welfare at the time versus the Department of Housing. So from its start, it was built as a welfare solution versus a part of a housing continuum for families that were facing housing instability. And the problem with that is that housing resources were never connected to families that were experiencing housing instability before they became homeless and to help get families that were experiencing homelessness quickly rehoused. Um, you know, something when I worked for the Lieutenant Governor, he chaired the Interagency Council on Housing and Homelessness. And we actually worked during that time, we filed legislation, the governor filed legislation to be able to move the shelter system over to the Department of Housing and Community, Connect, Community Development to connect those two systems. And, you know, there's certainly still an ongoing process. That's something I'm definitely interested to get back there to continue the work on because the system is still built and still operates not to help families in the moment of housing instability, but to, to essentially push families into homelessness to be able to get the supports that they, they need. And that what that mean, what I mean by that is in, in folks who ever have interacted with the system know, you know, you can't have any or, or very limited income. You can't have any assets. You can't have any feasible alternative housing, which means you can't, you can't be working. You can't have a car. You can't have other assets. You can't have, you know, you can't have your family that will have let you stay with them because that'd be considered feasible alternative housing and you're not able to, you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be given the, the, the services or the supports. That doesn't make sense. We should be investing more in prevention services so that we can, when a family is experiencing housing instability, we're able to help them stay housed which is not only more compassionate, right? It's helping just, you know, from disrupting a family and, and having them go into shelter, but it's also more cost effective to help a family stay housed than to have them go into shelter and then ultimately have to find them new housing. 
you know, and then the other piece is the, the bigger piece, which we haven't even, you know, begun to tackle is poverty. What are those underlying issues? You know, when somebody loses their job and they go into one of our, you know, one of the, the, the housing, the, excuse me, the employment resource centers, how are we targeting and working with them at that point to say, you may have some savings and that's great. Let's work with you on a housing plan so that at that point in time, we're starting to talk about the housing instability from not having an income and working with families then. So, you know, there's, this is, again, when I talk about complex systems, it is enormously complex. The budget line item that funds the family shelter system is seven pages long. Um, so it absolutely, uh, you know, needs to be, you know, addressed and tackled. And I know there's been a lot of work over the years to do so, but there's more work to do. And this is something I'm definitely interested and then flipping, you know, certainly as well with, with both families and individuals that are experiencing homelessness, you're absolutely right. You know, we have not invested sufficiently in supporting the underlying supports that folks need that, that you know, cause folks to, to, to go into homes, whether it's mental health supports, whether it's substance misuse treatment. Um, you know, we haven't invested enough. We haven't invested in, you know, case management supported agencies. And so, um, you know, it's something that we certainly need to be able to continue to provide adequate resources and the right types of supports um, that, folk, that folks want. And that's the other thing, you know, we kind of make these assumptions that, well, it's there, so why aren't they taking it? But when we don't know what their experience is like with those systems, when we don't know, you know, maybe they've been harmed in those systems or in those agencies or organizations. And so just because it is there and available doesn't mean it's safe or welcoming for someone to go into. And so we need to be cognizant and we need to recognize that and make sure that there are adequate and the right types of supports available. All right. You know, I'm really glad you said that. And um, I, I'm going to go off the topic after because this is an issue we can literally spend the whole podcast talking about. Yeah. It's so important. But I will say this. When I experienced um, home instability, um, you know, I had gotten a really good paying job and convinced my husband to give it all up, be an at-home dad and go back to school. So I was the sole breadwinner and had a complicated pregnancy and had to choose my child, um, you know, and stop working. Then we went from this income to zero income. And, you know, we were doing all this and I was cashing out 401k, bad decision, by the way, and just doing a lot of things, but I needed money. I needed to eat, right? Um, I remember going to a place, it was RCAP Solution, and I remember going there because we were on the verge of, you know, we hadn't paid the rent in months, and I, I remember to this day, and I'm still traumatized by it, they couldn't help me because I hadn't lost my home. I was told that if I ended up in a shelter, they would give me money towards finding a place to rent. And I remember saying, well, shouldn't you try to help me keep my home? Like, and I did have asset. I had a car. It wasn't mine. I was still paying for it, but it was considered asset. I had a car that wasn't working, but I owned it outright because I paid for it. It wasn't working. It was, and I'm like, it was still considered asset. I think it was like valid, like $3,000. I'm like, nobody's going to pay $500 for this, <laughs> you know? And I just right. remember feeling so discouraged and I had to get creative and, you know, did things my way. And thank God for being a woman because I had to do what I had to do. But okay. the systems that were in place that I thought these resources that were supposed to help me, like literally told me like, you have to fail completely first before I start building you back up. And I'm like, how about stopping me from failing? Right. So, okay. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And you're right. I'll come back another time and we'll have a podcast specifically on this. But, but you're absolutely right. And there's been some but not sufficient investment in some kind of intermediate supports and services. But that's where the system should be directed. It's supporting people where they're at with the right resources in the right moment. And the... the the frustrating thing is not only is it better for families, it would absolutely be better to be able to stay in home in their homes, but it's more cost effective. It, it costs on average for a family to stay in shelter for years about, well, and this is a somewhat outdated um, figure, $37,000 a year, $37,000. That's That could pay your rent for two years. That could pay a mortgage. That could pay. So it's not only more compassionate for helping families stay, but it actually saves the state money when you're paying your subsidizing rent or you're paying, you know, some types of supports so that a family doesn't ultimately need to go into shelter. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking so passionately about this. Um, I can see that it's something that you're passionate about, and I can definitely tell that it's something that you're going to tackle head on and just really try to dismantle the broken system that's in place. And um, well, there's been work done over the years, but you know, as with everything else, we have to grow and evolve if we want to continue to have an inclusive um, community. If we want to continue to have a community where everyone feel like you know, okay, they're not one paycheck away um, from losing it because that's, I've been there. It's not a lovely feeling. It is truly not a lovely feeling. So thank you for speaking on that topic. So let's shift gear for a minute. Um, so you've met me, you you follow me, you know my platform. I'm really, truly big on women supporting women and just empowering other women. But, you know, a lot of the conversations that I've been having lately, um, you know, on especially, you know, with the most recent Supreme Court decision, women are feeling very displaced and unsupported and just feeling like, well, I mean, I have one group that just want to burn the whole thing to the ground and start over. And I have the other group that just wants to give up and run away to a beach somewhere, but they don't know how they're going to support themselves. And then, you know, some just want to go to battle. So, but the bottom line is women are feeling very displaced. So have you gotten that feeling and how are you connecting um, with women who are just say like, what's the point? Yeah, and, and I have to say, you know, I think on a daily basis, I go through each of those feelings. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, I, I try to redirect and stay focused, uh, but it, it's so hard. And I, and I completely, you know, I can feel that it, it's, it's, you know, and that's, you know, talking about these issues. This is why representation is so important, because I'm not talking about some theory. I'm talking about my own health care. I'm talking about my own decisions and what's going to happen with my body and the choices that I am or am not going to be able to make. And that representation is so important. And even in Massachusetts, which we consider ourselves to be a pretty progressive state, only 30% of the legislature is female, 30%. And that's going down. It was at a high of 32% and it's now down to 30%. Um, and so it, representation is incredibly important. You know, thanks to Senator Chandler and, you know, in 2018 and before, you know, when people were still saying we were crazy to be thinking about this, that Roe v. Wade's never going to be overturned, Senator Chandler fought to pass the Roe Act. And she did so when it wasn't popular. And she did so when, like I said, people were saying, why are you talking about this? It's not, you know, it's not an issue. Massachusetts had some of the most stringent laws on the books in the nation that were all, you know, superseded by Roe v. Wade. But had Roe been overturned, we would have been one of the strictest states in the books in, in the country in North being able to access reproductive care. And so she did that at a time that was able to protect us, you know, with that foresight, with that leadership. Again, it wasn't easy. She had a lot of pushback. The governor vetoed it. So that's why it's so important to have that representation, to have that understanding of this is something that's important for us to be able to continue to tackle. Um, and it's so important that, that we are, you know, in so many ways, we're doing all of those things. A, we are, you know, there are some systems that need to be, you know, broken down and built back up from scratch. And, and we need to re-examine how we as a community, how we as a society are, are creating laws and, and, you know, unintentionally or intentionally harming others in, in doing so. Um, we need to make sure we do need to take some time at the beach to take care of ourselves, uh, for sure. Um, you know, this is a long battle. It's a battle, you know, and I say this all the time, I think since I, you know, had a understanding of, of life and, and the world around me as a teenager was in this fight to protect, you know, our rights and to ex help expand our rights. Um, so it is, it's a long battle. It's the battle goes on. It's not ending. Clearly they made it clear. They made it clear to us in the Supreme court decision that um, this is a, you know, this is something that they're going to continue to come after our rights. Everything that we thought was set a law is, you know, is now up in the air. And so we do need proactive uh, leaders to be not only protecting us and preventing some of these things from happening, but also being proactive. You know, I talk a lot about, you know, as I'm talking to folks about this issue, it's great that, you know, we're having this conversation around Roe and it's great that Massachusetts is much safer than other states now. But we also need to be talking about the fact that maternal morbidity rates for black women are 1.9 times higher than they are for white women. We need to be addressing these health disparities and these inequities because we can't say that women have full comprehensive access to reproductive care 
when there are such stark disparities in maternal morbidity rates, for example. And so for me, it is about tackling these issues and, and addressing these issues from the perspective of not only empowering women, but dismantling racist and unjust systems along the way and the disparities that lead to those systems. And so, you know, that's incredibly important. And I will say, you know, I, I, I say all the time, it, it, I could feel the ground shake in the campaign when the draft Supreme, uh, Supreme Court decision was released. You know, I think it was at that time that people started waking up and or started paying attention. I should say, I think, you know, many people were awake, but paying attention to the campaign and how it relates um, in this election. And, you know, starting at that point, I had folks, you know, calling me up, asking to volunteer, you know, just sending in donations saying, you know, we need more women, we need to, you need to get elected. And wanting to have, you know, have this conversation, I was invited to speak at a rally uh, for Roe up in Fitchburg, which isn't in the district, but, you know, two young women of color that had organized this rally said, you know, we want to have, hear what you have to say. We know you've spoken and we appreciated what you had to say at other spaces. Would you please come here too? So, you know, that's, that's, it's so important. And I'm certainly, I'm certainly hearing it. And then it tied to, you know, the legacy of, of Senator Chandler and, and again, being the first woman elected from our delegation, but also all that she did to not only protect women, but to protect our families and our community and make it stronger and safer for, for each of us. Absolutely. I mean, I just want to say yes, Queen, but, you know, <laughs> both to you and Harriet Chandler for, you know, attacking this issue, because I do know that a lot of people um, do to try to um, avoid it. And, you know, one of the things that you talked about, and I, I love it because Sun Tzu, and I hope I don't, you know, mess his name up. He said, like, you don't prepare for war when you're in war, you prepare for war before. And the fact that she had the, you know, the hindsight, um, you know, to go after something like that before, because now it's happening, right? And, you know, we do have to pay attention, like, just look at currents and see what's happening. And we can go after these things before, because, it happened. I mean, you could see it coming a mile away, like just based on leaked documents or all those things that were happening. And folks were like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And, you know, all of that. And a lot of people were shocked. I mean, I was expecting it, but I was still personally like, yo, dude, really? Like, really? Like, I can't make a decision. It doesn't matter what others think. You know, it's, I don't, it, it doesn't even matter what I think about it. It is not my personal opinion. It's not my body. Everybody has, you know, the right to choose. So no, thank you for, um, you know, speaking to that. I think it's so important. Again, we've got right. to prepare for battle before we get into the battle. Like you can't be part right. of tragedy right in the middle of the war. You're, you've already lost. So, and you know, it's so important to me too that we're also changing the narrative, and I think it's on our generation to be doing so. You know, the the biggest, the most frustrating thing about this is is overturning Roe v. Wade is not going to reduce abortions. It's not going to make it. It's going to make it much more unsafe and dangerous and deadly uh, for women and individuals across the country. And so, you know, it's it's not even it's it's the wrong strategy if that if your end goal is eliminating or eliminating abortions, which again, we can talk about your own, your own challenges with, you know, having body autonomy and, and uh, comprehensive reproductive health care. But it's not even, that's not even going to accomplish that. It's just going to make more women die. And so exactly. for me, it's, it's it's so frustrating that, and I think we need to be changing the narrative about the fact that it's it's part of comprehensive reproductive care. It's about, you know, and, it, you know, it's, it's, it's so personal. I remember talking to, to a woman certain, shortly after the decision was overturned and she had just uh, miscarried. And she was talking about, and she was telling me how her doctor, you know, she basically had to have an abortion or otherwise she would have to have the dead fetus within her. And it's so important that we're talking about this because this is the reality. This is the reality of what we're talking about here is not, you know, the scary kind of scare tactics that they, that the that they want to portray it to be. It's about women being able to make the decision about what's happening within them with their doctor, with yeah. their medical provider about what's best. And so, you know, I think having these these conversations and and, ha and, and being clear and articulating what it's about is, is incredibly important for us to be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I thank you for speaking to it. I thank you for addressing it. You know, I want to pop back to two things and then we'll move on because, I mean, we could spend all day um, on these issues. They're both, they're all so important, um, but I really want to give the listeners just a feel of, you know, your thoughts on a couple of things. But, you know, one sure. thing you highlighted, um, you know, talk about, you know, just the, the average of women um, in 
politics in Boston, you know, compared to, you know, men, right? And then when you dig deeper into um, minorities, Blacks or Asians or Hispanic or things like that, like it gets even narrower. So we certainly need to do what we can to ensure that Others are represented because representation matters. It's important to me when I see a woman, I see a black woman, I see an interpreter. There's all these things we connect with and identify with. But when we see somebody that represents us, any part of us, we feel empowered because we're like, okay, they could do it. And it gives us open. It inspires us. So I'm glad that you're in this race. And I, you know, I, I want you to like other women listening to you and hearing you and seeing you will be inspired to start their own journey in whatever they are to just dismantle in the system. And, you know, another thing I wanted to talk about, I took my daughter to the doctor uh, the other day and in the, the doctor, she, my daughter's 15 and she was speaking to my daughter as an intelligent human being. And I like that because normally they ignore her and speak to me. And my daughter was answering and she asked questions. And I like that. And when I left and I said to her, I said, it was a female doctor. And I said, that was a very good doctor's visit. And she's like, you didn't say anything. I said, no, I was listening to the interaction between you and the doctor because, and then I started to talk to her about the mortality rate, you know, of black women, um, you know, compared to other races. And I said, it's important for you to know everything about your health ask any questions that you can about your health because historically we have been ignored or be, you know been accused of being dramatic or you know just like being blown off for things that you know we're experiencing on our own bodies so i'm trying to educate her and teach her how important that is to have a voice so i think you know fighting for women's right um just to be able to choose your own physician or have a conversation with your physician, you know, can you imagine how that lady feel, you know, had a miscarriage and have to have that conversation? It should be a non-issue, right? But no, these are conversations and these are things we're going to have to continue to tackle. And, you know, we are going to need allies. We're going to need allies. Put your money where your mouth is. So folks that are saying they support it, but like are supporting you secretly in the dark, in the basement, you know, behind the cellar door, no, you need to come out, step up and speak up. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that. And, and to the first point you raised, you know, I, I have been saying this as I'm now, you know, a few months into as a first time candidate, but a few months now into this campaign and having worked on many campaigns in my life and certainly also carrying all the inherent privileges I carry as a white woman, you know, it's such an important point of even, even with all of that, just the, enormity of the hurdles that we face as women and then thinking about as you mentioned particularly with women of the global majority that have even more hurdles and barriers uh, to be able to face to even be able to access systems when you think about everything that goes into mounting a campaign running a campaign even just and it's just and it is it is just a difference and not you know i certainly don't want to be you know go with hyperbole because there are certainly differences but what women carry the emotional impact of, you know, just running for the race, the ups and downs of the daily struggle of this, um, you know, it's, it's important to be talking about. And it's important that we are building that space. And that's something that, you know, it's something I've been committed to, you know, working to elect uh, progressive women, uh, women of color to office. And something that, you know, having going through this as a candidate, I am even uh, more adamant um, that regardless of what happens in September, that that is something that I'm going to be working with and not and being very mindful, because again, I think as a woman, I recognize we do this quite often, not to step in and say, this is how you need to do this, but to be able to say, we need to be running for more seats. We need to be running for more seats at the municipal level, at the state level, and at the federal level. And so, you know, I am committed to doing whatever I can to support uh, women and again, particularly women of color who are looking, um, who are interested at all and in, in want to step up into those spaces and to learn how to run campaigns. You know, that's another important piece. It, having the, the benefits and the privileges I mentioned walking into this race, I was very deliberate to make sure that I was hiring people, not that, you know, that have the skill sets that are needed to run campaigns. I was able to hire a consultant that helped design my campaign plan. But then I, the staff that I brought on, I made sure were representative of the community. So both my campaign manager and my um, social media director, which are my two first hires, are both women of color. 
My field director is representative of the LGBTQIA community because it's so important that we that we don't just say the words that we that we live it. And when we have space, you know, particularly again as a white woman, where I'm in taking up space, that I'm making sure that I'm building pathways and, and making space for others to to come and replace me. So, um, you know, it's so important that it, that we're living and practicing what we're saying, not just continuing to say it. Um, to your point, so. No, I appreciate that. You know, I appreciate you acknowledging your privilege because I think, you know, sometimes, I mean, some folks will be like, well, let me just gloss over it. No, address it, but says, okay, I get it, but here's what I'm going to do. Here is what I have done. Here's what we're going to do together. So I love it. I support it. I'm all for it. And I've met, um, you know, two of the individuals that you mentioned and I adore them. So, all right. So let's- <laughs> Let's jump to another question. So um, small businesses, I have been surrounded by and a lot of female um, who have been doing small businesses. Like, how do you plan to support small businesses if you're elected? Any plans? Sure. Well, you know, I think that there's kind of some of the themes that I'm hearing um, that I think there's definitely opportunities. You know, I, I hear a lot from folks just in terms of that have small businesses how important an investment in the roads, the sidewalks, you know, the, the building facades of the, of the properties that they're renting for their businesses or the properties that they own for their businesses, you know, that those are resources that as a state legislator, we can definitely be working with the, the municipalities to bring back um, to make sure that the businesses have, you know, parking availability, that they have access to their business, that the sidewalks in front of their businesses are safe. Um, there's things like that, you know, you know, unemployment insurance, some of the, the other investments um, that we can, you know, be making as state legislators, workforce development, my number one priority, and going back to what I'm hearing about on the doors, as I'm talking to voters, workforce, 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 I think we across the board, you know, every industry was impacted by the pandemic in terms of losing or, or having a transition of their workforce. And so for me, where we can invest again, as a legislator to be able to support workforce development. Let me give you a quick example of that. At the YWCA within our early education and care system or center, excuse me, we have, um, we have you know, a good number of younger, um, new to the field teachers. So we actually partnered with Quinsigamon Community College with funding from the Department, State Department of Labor to create an apprenticeship program. For our, for our teachers. And we started with one, hopefully it's gonna to grow to be able to help that teacher get their credentials through Quinsig, but then also support them with a master teacher from the community and a mentor from the YWCA so that we can provide the wraparound supports as they're getting credentials and as they're in the classroom, learning on the job, make sure that they have the supports that they need to, to do so successfully. And so that's something we could be investing in wholly more than we, do today. So that type of workforce development is something that I would definitely support. And then what I think is so important, and I say this consistently, regardless of what the issue is, is my job as a legislator is not to come in and say, I know what you need to su succeed. My job is to say, tell me what you need to succeed and let me get that to you from the state. And so, you know, there's a whole host of, of challenges that I know different businesses are experiencing that if we need, you know, I need to hear from them to be able to lift up what those are to be able to, to deliver for versus saying, here's a one size fits all, here's a pot of money and you should be good. You know, looking at things like the Latin American Business Organization, you know, there's, you know, I'm learning more about the, the um, Latino, Latina owned in, uh, businesses in the community here. When you look at things like PPP, that was the, su the supportive um, funding to help businesses survive during the pandemic. When there's issues when you know when you have immigrants run businesses or they need support and being able to you know have tax filings to be able to show through the paperwork again a lot of technical stuff but again that barriers that are built into the system that just make it more difficult for businesses to be able to get the supports and the ongoing supports that they need and so um, I think there's a lot of strategies globally that we could be investing in that could support small businesses I also then know that there's a lot of unique needs and interests that that my job as a legislator is to listen to and help support. 
All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, I love one of the things that you said. There's so many great things. And, you know, honestly, we could chat all day. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to coming back as state senator and having all these topic specific conversations. Absolutely. You know, but, you know, I I think that it, I love listening to people. I love learning. I'm consistently thinking of ways to grow and then how I can help others. Um, so I really like just how thought out your answers are, because, you know, here's my experience, um, you know, here's my plan. Um, this is my, you know, this is my view and things like that. But I really love what you said that you're not going in there and saying, Hey, you know, this is how you're going to fix it. No, because a new one will be receptive and be truthfully. No one knows everything. And most things, especially with a system like that, that's been around for so long, we do know it's broken, but you know, you, there's no one thing that's going to work. It's going to be many, many strategic, um, things that's going to help and multiple people that's going to do it. I don't think any one person, believe me, because if there was one person who could do it all, like send them to me right now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Exactly. So I'm going to ask you one question and then we're going to go into the bonus round because, and then we're just going to go fast fry a question just because I want to highlight an event that you're going to be at and we're going to be thrown out. And, you know, I want to make sure that we, I, I typically try to keep it to an hour. Sometimes we go a little over, but we know the attention span of people. Sometimes they're like, yeah, no, I can't listen. And I really want them to listen to you and to whet their appetite um, on who Robin Kennedy is. You know, you remember it's your, you said it's your first time running and, you know, we want it to be the first time F many times. Okay. So <laughs> how, how do you plan to get folks to get out and vote? Because they've truly lost, um, you know, hope in the system and politicians. And we addressed many of those issues, but how are you personally ensuring that folks are going to get up and go out and vote in September? Right. So I, I, you know, I so appreciate this question and, and it is, it's so, um, having worked on so many political campaigns, I'm so, you know, disappointed and frustrated by a self-fulfilling prophecy that we have here in the community. There are certain wards and districts, and I imagine you can guess what wards and precincts those are that vote consistently in elections. So candidates and elected officials spend a lot of time focusing on those wards and precincts. Um, so then those wards and precincts continue to show up to vote and certainly others I constantly hear this question, why should I bother? Nobody comes here, nobody cares about my neighborhood, nobody invests in this neighborhood. Um, so we need to change that narrative. We, you know, it, it's so it's so challenging as a candidate because it is a balance of with limited time, you need to get to the, the folks that are gonna vote because they're the ones that are gonna show up. But at the same time, you need to we need to be in a place where we're giving those who haven't felt a need or desire to show up a reason to. Um, so I, I recognize that and I recognize that why folks would choose not to in this election or choose not to. And um, I want to continue these types of conversations and these these dialogues so that whether it's for this campaign and then certainly beyond this campaign, we're doing the work to change that narrative. We're investing and in, you know, I've seen it was, you know, after the last municipal election with some of our city councilors like Tunuen and Tel Hajii that they're really investing in their, their neighborhoods and spending time there. We need to continue that momentum of, of changing that narrative um, because it is incredibly important. But in terms of a campaign strategy, you know, we are, our whole campaign is about direct voter contact, mostly through door to door, knocking on doors, talking directly to voters and capturing where folks are, are feeling in terms of, you know, whether they're going to strongly support me or whether they're still on the fence, still undecided. Um, or they may be supporting my opponent and we're capturing all of that data so that come election day, um, we can follow back up with folks and say, hey, thank you for your support. Just want to make sure you got out there to vote today or make sure that you voted early or that you've been able to, to cast your vote because it's incredibly important. So um, for me, across the district, across the board, it's important that we're talking to voters and, and really capturing that information. Thank you so much. I, I I love what you said, you know, in terms of, you know, folks are going to go to the ones that have shown up for them in the past, but again, so it's that double-edged sword, right? Like you don't show up for the one because they never show up, but you don't, if you don't show up for them, they're not going to show up. So <laughs> you're going to have to make that decision, you know, what to do, because there's a lot of votes out there. I remember what Stacey Abrams was able to do, how she galvanized so many to go out and vote, those who didn't typically vote. So it absolutely yeah. and certainly can be done. And this is what I'll say, and you don't have to agree to this. Um, This is a Suzanne's statement. Some of these states are cray cray. Some of these laws in some of these states are like, 
insane. I'm like, just after Roe versus Wade, the abortion laws and all of that. So this is why it's important to vote at the state level because the craze that's happening in the states, because you didn't vote, the folks that you didn't want to see elected, they're in seats and positions of power and they're making decisions that implement, like that impacts you. So it's so important to start at, you know, the, your city level, your state level, get involved in anything, wherever you could use your voice because if you don't speak up you don't have a voice it's as simple as that if you don't vote you like you get what you get you get what you get please go out and vote i am begging you i am begging you see what's happening in texas (laughs) i'm gonna say texas exactly i agree wholeheartedly with your statement i agree wholeheartedly and i think it's um, both the craziness in some of the states, but also in the the fact that, you know, your state government is, you know, when something like Roe v. Wade is under, overturned at the federal level, it is the state governments that are deciding what your rights and what your, your access and what your care will look like. So it is incredibly important. And then you, the closer you get the municipal, municipal level, it's incredibly important how your municipal officials are voting and how they've consistently voted. Um, and so it's it's that yeah I agree with you it's it's so much so important to be voting particularly in the local levels exactly listen I'm watching the news sometimes and I'm like these states are insane like I'm like is that for real like I feel like we're going back but again like it's it's okay I, I like I said that's my personal statement these states are cray get involved in the <laughs> levels and cray cray straight crazy and state yep. level and like everything because the ones from the municipal level goes to the state level then go to you know washington so if they're unchecked in the municipal level then they're unchecked in the state level try checking them when they're in washington so let's start like from the seed like so let's start from the seed all right so we're going to do a rapid fire round um and i love your answers they're so thoughtful thought out and so thoughtful um but i'm wetting their appetite with these next couple of questions so who was the biggest um influence in your political career i'd say state senator at augustus when i worked for him in the state senate okay all right if you were to describe in one sentence your opinion of the state of the economy right now, what would you say? I would say that that people are struggling and it is on legislative leaders to support and make things easier for our residents. Okay. What is your opinion of the state of education, especially student loans? <laughs> so that's a very broad question. I will say in terms of, of student loans, I do support the effort. Um, of Senator Elizabeth Warren and others who are trying to um, reprieve from student loans. Um, you know, it's certainly, it's people shouldn't be going into a lifetime of debt to be able to get an education, to be able to get a job. Um, certainly carrying my own student loans, I certainly appreciate that. Um, overall, I think that the state of education is, is good. Um, we have phenomenal teachers. That said, there are a lot of internal struggles. We need to look at, you know, disparity rates and continue to track the disparity rates uh, for discipline here in our schools, et cetera. So um, it's good, but we have work to do. All right, perfect. Um, your opinion on the state of healthcare? I mean, we talked a little bit about Massachusetts, but healthcare in the country. So Massachusetts has done a really good job on getting residents enrolled in healthcare. We have a lot of work to do to address uh, systemic disparities in access to quality, comprehensive, and affordable healthcare. Um, that's the next big tackle, big uh, challenge that uh, we as a state have to tackle. So we do have good healthcare. We do have a good number of residents, majority of our residents, vast majority of our residents enrolled in healthcare, but we have work to do to make it accessible and affordable to every resident. All right. And um, in your opinion, what would your biggest responsibility be in this role? My biggest responsibility is to be bringing the voice of the community amplifying it, not being the voice of, but amplifying the voice of uh, my constituents. Okay. And what have you done? You talked a little bit about it, but what have you done to ensure our, actually, I'll change that up. Why is it important to have a diverse staff on your campaign? It's incredibly important because it is about creating the pathways for folks that don't typically have access. If we want to change systems, if we want to make things, you know, dismantle racism, if we want to disrupt systems that perpetuate racism, we have to recognize that it is not 
for white people alone to do that. We need to make space um, for for communities of color, for communities of the global majority to be uh, to be doing making that change. All right. What separates you from your opponent? I think certainly the priorities and the lens in which we would tackle the priorities that we have uh, separates us. I also say that, you know, I'm the candidate in the race that has worked not only in state government and has experience working in the state Senate and in the executive branch, uh, but that also has experience working in the community, serving the community, um, particularly during the pandemic, but certainly having managed a workforce and and understanding firsthand, not only the impact, uh, uh, the under- All right. Thank you so much. So, um, Robin, final question. Why should we vote for you? Well, I I would, you know, certainly ask folks uh, for my vote, partially because I do have the experience having worked in state government to really be able to hit the ground running, understanding both the state legislative process and budget process, as well as having worked in the executive branch and really understanding uh, the relationship between the executive branch agencies like DTA, like Department of Housing and Community Development, and the, re- the relationship they can have to, to make a positive uh, change with the legislature. Um, but also because of my work in the community. Uh, my work, my life has been about building within community. Um, and certainly my work at the YWCA over the past several years has amplified that. And I look forward to continuing uh, to do that work in the state legislature with community. So uh, I'd ask you to, to support me. All right. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, you've certainly got my vote. So <laughs> thank you so much. So Robin, um, it has been such a pleasure um, just chatting with you today. I would certainly love to go all day, but we cannot. <laughs> but um, I appreciate all the questions you answered authentically, honestly. Um, you know, I appreciate that. You know, the voters, the listeners will appreciate that. And, you know, we're excited. Um, and I'm going to jump into that to say that I am hosting um, an event for you, a fundraiser for you on August 11th at Life Garden Cafe. And I'm so excited about that because it will give it the constituents an opportunity to come and chat with you directly and ask some of these questions. And I'm hoping that this podcast kind of opens that up and they'll get to hear a little bit of who you are and come ready and waiting and just asking questions and donate it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I so appreciate your support, Suzanne. I appreciate that we were able to connect a few weeks ago and certainly, you know, the relationship we're building. And I, I really appreciate and value that and, and certainly appreciate and value your support in this, this race. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the event and, and look forward to meeting folks and answering any question that folks have. Perfect. Um, absolutely meet you. We met at the power of the purse, and this is the power of connecting, of networking, of women. There's so many power in that statement. All right, Robin, so as I'm wrapping up, let's tell them when the vote is, where they can vote, and all of that, and then we'll wrap it right up. Absolutely. So election day is Tuesday, September 6th. Uh, certainly, you everyone should have received in their mail a uh, request or a, a letter to submit to request a mail-in ballot. Uh, so if folks are going to be away for the long weekend for Labor Day and maybe plan to extend that into the 6th, I certainly encourage you to get your mail-in ballot uh, to request in today uh, so that you can vote early and ahead of time ahead before going away for the weekend. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Robin. It has been a pleasure to speak to you, to learn more about you. And as I continue to follow you and learn more about you, um, I'm truly impressed and I'm excited about the future and what you are going to be able to do um, when you're in there and just dismantling system and and learning and growing because I think you have to learn and grow every single day. Um, I'm excited. Like the first time you do something, it, it, it's it's so new. I love it because, you know, you're gung-ho and I always say you have no bad habits. So. <laughs> exactly. And I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate uh, your, your support again. And, and I look forward to growing with you. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Thank there you, you have for it. having me. 
State Senate candidate, Miss Robin Kennedy, um, outstanding guest um, on the podcast, the Sit Down with Suzanne podcast. Um, listen to the podcast, share the podcast with everyone, um, and then come to the event on the 11th um, of August from 5 to 9 at Life Garden Cafe at 1048 Main Street, where you get an opportunity to not only see Robin, but chat with her and actually experience some fabulous food from a female entrepreneurs. So until next time. This is Suzanne saying, please listen to the call to actions that I'm going to talk about right after this. As always, guys, this is Suzanne saying thank you. I am saying I am humbled by your continued support. I am humbled by you continuing to tune in every time there is a new episode. I appreciate it because I know that there's a lot of podcasts out there for you to choose from so that you continue to choose mine and listen to it. I appreciate it. So a couple of things. want to keep reminding you guys that the Sit Down with Suzanne podcast is available. It is on my website at www.positivelysuzanne.com. It's also available in all the major podcasts and directories. It's on Apple Music, it's on Amazon, it's on iHeart, it's on Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, and a plethora of others. So wherever you get your podcasts, I guarantee you the Sit Down with Suzanne podcast is on it. So I need you to do a couple of things for me. I need you to listen to the episode. I need you to subscribe. I need you to share the episode. I need you to write a review and spread the word, spread the word that the Sit Down with Suzanne podcast is out there. It's happening and it's fun and fabulous. So I want you to share it because we're trying to help more people. So again, please go ahead and share, like, write a review. If you want to reach out to me, you can connect with me at Suzanne at PositivelySuzanne.com. You could also follow me on social media. Instagram is my main jam. So go ahead and follow me on Instagram. I am just so appreciative of everything you do. Also buy me a coffee should be right at the bottom of the episode. So you can go ahead and buy me a coffee. Just remember that every coffee that you buy goes towards purchasing equipment to upgrade the soul. So I could be bigger and better for you all. All right. So as always, I'm so appreciative of you guys. And until next time, this is Suzanne signing off.